Well, take that Bible, look over to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, as we pick up our text here in 1 John 3, 19 through 24, I was working very hard to see if I could finish and move into chapter 4 after Thanksgiving, but not quite sure I'm going to be finished. There's so much here. And uh, we are, if you're visiting with us in the study of 1 John, we're expositing through the epistle of 1 John. And we find ourselves in this new paragraph here, 1 John 3, 19 through 24. Read the text, follow along as I read it from the ESV. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. May God bless the the reading of his scripture. I'm so thankful for this passage because I, with you, learn every week um, regarding the word of God. And I'm convinced that when you're, I was reading something on the web yesterday that uh, a guy just preaches topically and so he said that it just helps him with his creativity because he only has to pick about six or seven topics a year and then he probably just preaches those six or seven topics for I don't know four weeks five weeks six weeks at a time and so he doesn't have to be so creative that every week he's making something different but I thought no that that's That's what we're not doing here. We want to have our hearts in the Word of God, and we want to let the writer's uh, heart come out to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, I've titled this message, The Basis of Our Assurance Before God. And we've been addressing that theme of assurance, and we'll keep going because that's the main theme in this text is our assurance. And I've asked the question before, I'll ask it again, can you rest in the settled confidence that your salvation is secure? Do you understand that your salvation is secure as you come in? Do you have a confidence in that? In fact, that age-old question, if you were to die today, are you confident that you would go to heaven? I mean, one of the things that we find in the Scripture, certainly in 1 John, is these things, John says in 5.13, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. There is just no question all through the Scripture that the assurance of our salvation is affirmed and stated. In fact, John says... Of the, of the purposes in John that I've written for this purpose that you would know that you have eternal life. And so we come to really, yet again, another wonderful section. It's different than the other ones, but a new one on the believer's assurance. And that John here will array his argument to give us confidence that we are the children of God. 
Now, as I begin to study this paragraph before us, I was once again reminded how important the doctrine of assurance is. In fact, if you just glance down in the text, look at verse 19. He says, and this we shall know. He states it very confident. He says in verse 19, and reassure our hearts. If you look down in your Bible at verse 21, it says there that we have confidence before God. If you look at verse 24, there in the middle of 24, by this we know. And so all over this text, even this paragraph, is a confidence, is assurance, is a knowledge that is based on understanding and facts. In fact, look at verse 19 again. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, of course, not everybody believes this. And as I read this week on assurance, I was reminded of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, and others, but in particular, the Roman Catholic Church It teaches, I believe, as you know, that nobody and anybody or anybody can have assurance of salvation that is in their doctrine. So understand, as I say, this is why John wrote, they certainly don't believe that. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church does not believe that assurance is even a desirable conviction. And if you came out of the Wesleyanism movement, There are some people believe whom you can't know that and you should not teach that. In fact, the Catholic Church, and again, if you're here and you're visiting, I'm not being offensive. I will just quote from their documents. But they they say that it's it's not a desirable conviction. It's an undesirable confidence because the church believes that if you could ever know you were fully and finally headed for heaven, it would actually make you, in their mind, careless about your sin, and then you would become careless and about living that life, and then you can thus lose your salvation. So they would have you to be mystified, if you will, and better to make sure that you never have any assurance, because if you never have any assurance, you're going to work hard to try to make it in the fear that you might not, right? And, you know, some of you might say, well, that's what I was taught growing up. And you weren't in a Catholic church, I understand. Some people would love to have you live in fear of that. But in the canons and the decrees of the Council of Trent, here's what it says. Quote, these are their documents. No one can know with a certainty of faith which cannot be subject to error that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can ever know that he's obtained saving grace. That's in their documents. That's what they declare. In fact, Roman Catholic people live without the knowledge and live without the right to that knowledge. Furthermore, the canons and the decrees of Trent say this, quote, no one moreover, as long as he is in this mortal life, ought to presume as regards the secret mystery of divine predestination as to determine for certain that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinates, 
for except by special revelation, it cannot be known whom God hath chosen unto himself, end of quote. That's why if you've ever shared your faith with a Roman Catholic, have you ever asked that question to them? If you were to die tonight or die today and you were to stand before God, what would God say to you? And I'm telling you, 100%, if they've been in that church, would say what? I don't what? No. Because what they're saying is they're not sure how the, the balance and the scales would weigh out. And no one can really, really be sure. In fact, as far as the Roman Catholics know, the Pope could be on his way to hell. And as far as the Pope knows, he could be on his way to hell just as well because there is such presumption, there is no such presumption of assurance allowed. So understand, as we look at this scripture, I'm just putting that out to you that uh, this matters in the Word of God. In fact, another paragraph from the Council of Trent said this, quote, if anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate, predestinate, let him be anathema. That's pretty strong. In other words, what they're saying in their document, fair, you pronounce a curse on such a person who is assured of his or her salvation, and such a person would be damned who would exercise such presumption. I mean, how utterly tragic. You say, well, that's just 16th century stuff. Oh, no, no, they believe that today. These are their councils. In fact, if I updated you, there's a recent Roman Catholic dictionary of theology that is in print, and this is what it says under the heading, Certainty of Salvation. It says, a concept of Protestant theology, more of that cursed Reformed theology, Certainty of Salvation, it says this, is a concept of Protestant theology, which signifies a belief in justification so firm that this belief is inconsistent with any doubt of man's ultimate salvation. Wow, they called it the cursed reform theology. In other words, the, the fact that there's assurance to the Catholics is a heresy to have that assurance. So understand when we come in here, we're going to be looking at what John says. But there was another evangelical author who said it's not just the Catholics who deny that we can be certain. In those that are designated Arminian, I want to make sure I'm clear there, not Armenian, okay? That's a nationality, you know that. Arminian theology is a theology named after a man by the name of Arminius, Jacob Arminius. And uh, he was a time a, a Dutch theologian from years ago, and he taught that you could lose your salvation. In fact, in the Arminian view, is similar to the Wesleyan, in, Wesleyan view, and it's, as it's often called, is the idea that you can lose your salvation. So you never really, since you don't have secure salvation, you can't have real assurance because you don't know that you might do something to forfeit the salvation you have. This is what they teach. And so it's not healthy for you to feel too assured 
of your salvation or you're going to fall into the same pattern that the Catholics were worried about and you're going to stumble off and lose your salvation. So, I mean, this is what is out there. But when I read the New Testament, it always speaks about assurance, not in vague ways, not in mysterious ways, but it speaks of it in great, uh, one writer called superlatives. For example, when you look at Colossians 2.2, it uses the phrase full assurance. It uses that phrase full conviction in Hebrews 6.11 and 10.22. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it uses the phrase full conviction and you have these. In fact, God doesn't want to withhold you from that. We've been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And God wants to pour out his blessings on us. And one of those blessings is the doctrine of assurance. Now, one of the assurances that God gives to us that verifies an authentic faith is our love for one another. And that's the text in which we come to the text which we came out of. Now, as we step into this text, we come to a passage that I would just tell you is one of the most difficult that I have worked through in years. And you say, well, why is that? Because it's, you're always looking at the words and you're trying to discern, obviously, that's what the study of the Bible is, hermeneutics, the science of Scripture, why did John write it this way? I would say that in this week alone, I just had to, it's, it's probably 25 hours to get to the point where I'm coming to you today. And one of the reasons is, is it's a grammatical maze. And, and there's nuances in the language and the words and what does this mean? And there's options that come to the one who studies this. In fact, one French writer actually said that this text, is, and his name was Loisy, L-O-I-S-Y. He referred to this text as gibberish, to which I think his name should be renamed Lousy. Um, but, but they don't know what to do with it. There was a, another writer who said, it's just, you know, and you know, I'm kind of being sarcastic, who said that John's grammar here is inept. He said that he is inept at constructing, quote, clear sentences. But as we shall see, this is the word of God, is it not? So when you look and come to the text, you're never thinking this is inept. You're digging and you're looking for gold and you're trying to find what's in the text. And I think we'll be able to make sense of it. Now, the battle that I have, and I just tell you honestly, I want to keep us moving through 1 John. But I know I'm probably never going to get back to 1 John. So what we say today and what we say every Sunday immensely matters. And I don't want to skip over this text. But rest assured that if you're at a church that teaches topical, they'd never pick this one. <laughs> I mean, it's stay away from that one, you know. And I'm like, no, 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 there's, there's nuggets in this thing. So let's dive into it and look at it. Look here again at the scripture in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth 
and reassure our heart before him. So watch this. The link as we approach the text with what has come before is the word truth. Look back at verse 18. Do you remember when we talked about loving one another? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in, he uses this phrase, in deed and truth. So we are to love, verse 18, indeed in truth. And now look at the text in 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. In other words, what John is saying here, he's making a link from verse 18 to verse 19. And he makes the link around truth. And he makes the link around those who love one another are indeed of the truth. And so such love of one another is a test of whether or not we are in the truth. In fact, Jesus said the same thing, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you, what? Love one another. That is a verification. Your love, what we preached on last week, authenticates your faith. Do you love the body of Christ? Do you love the people of God? Do you, we were talking at membership class even this morning, that to not forsake the assembly, found up and bound up in a heart of a man or heart of a woman, he wants to be around the body. She wants to be around the truth. In fact, John is just saying in 18 and now in 19, it authenticates our faith. In fact, look at the word, and we're just here at intro. By this we shall know. Stop there just for a second. Here's how we've learned. Here's what we've found out. Here's what we would discover if we are in the truth. And for John here, love put into action gives evidence that you are of the truth. So he goes back, if you will, to go forward. So the ones who practice this love for one another experience here the assurance of salvation and the blessing of God in a number of ways. So we come to a new paragraph, but he's still looking back last week that we would love one another. So here's how I'd like to arrange our text this week and the next time we're in it, is that he sets forth three blessings of assurance that will arise in the heart of a believer by putting love into action. Okay, three blessings of assurance that arise in the heart of a believer by putting love into action. In other words, as you put love into action, love for one another will produce this, okay? And he's gonna talk about, number one, the assurance of being in the truth. Number two, the assurance of coming to God in prayer, and number three, the assurance of our union with the Spirit. This is very, very important truth, okay? And so we'll look at that this week and in the weeks to come. But let's look first at the practice of love. By the way, do you have the notes today? Are they in the bulletin? Great, so you have them. Let's look first at the practice of love will produce the assurance of truth, of, of truth residing in our heart, okay? It will produce the assurance of truth residing in our heart. 
And I want to look at first the confirming heart with you. Look at verse 19 again. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. In other words, he says, we shall know. And he's speaking here of an acquired knowledge. It's a knowledge out of the text that is based on experience. In fact, he puts it in the future tense because it looks forward to when the condition is actually met. We shall know. In other words, the result of this knowledge is that we would know that we are of the truth. Now, he mentions that phrase there, that we are of the truth. That would simply be the truth of the gospel. It would be the truth of God as revealed in the scripture. It's the truth regarding the person of Christ. So as John says, and he begins here, he says, here is truth inscripturated in his word and truth that is incarnated, if you will, in his son. And so he says again in 19, by this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. You say, well, how? Verse 19, by this we shall know. By what he's just preached on, as I mentioned. You will know this. You will have assurance. That's his theme. You say, well, where do I get assurance from? Here, assurance comes from loving one another. See, loving the brethren or loving one another is the objective test of our Christian profession. In other words, somebody can say they love God or say they love the people of God, but it's only the people who actually live that out and that creates the objective test. And as we looked in the last weeks, that love is not a sentiment, that love is not a feeling per se, that love is not emotions, but according to John, that love is to be put into action. It is a love, remember that we looked at, that is not demonstrated in word only. It's a love that's demonstrated, verse 18, in deed and truth. So loving others then, make it clear of this, is not the basis of our salvation, but it certainly is the result of it. And so as we display this love for one another, look what John says in verse 19. He says, as we do this, we reassure our heart before him. Now, you understand what he's saying here. There is assurance, but assurance needs to be verified. And the verification in the text is our mutual love for one another. And as you put that into action, then you assure your heart before God. In other words, there is assurance then that is bound up in loving one another. Now, that idea there, you see it in verse 19. There's one of the interesting words where it says to reassure our heart before him. Oftentimes, that word means to be persuaded. And the thought that John is saying is if we love the brethren, then our heart will be reassured of our standing in Christ. So what we're saying is, no, you should know that you have eternal life. And one of the reasons you know that you have eternal life is you love the people of God. And we talked about that extensively last week. And when you begin to love the people of God, look at verse 19. It says, you reassure our heart before him, before God, okay? So love put into action 
produces an awareness that we are in the truth and possess that assurance before God. In other words, you can rest before God. You can be calm before God. You can be assured before God. In fact, it's interesting because one translation on that word for 19, to reassure our heart, it's literally the word that's used as a tranquilizer. And you think that, that sounds kind of, <laughs> that doesn't sound too good. You're tranquilized. But in this sense, listen, when you love the people of God, your heart is calm. That's what it's saying. Your heart is at peace. It's the ideal, if you will, to be tranquilized, to be quiet, and to quiet, if you will, the troubled heart in the presence of God. It's a wonderful promise. By loving others in the truth, it shows that we belong to the truth. And this well might be the case for you. You know you are of the truth because you love the body. In this light, then, you have assurance before God, literally before His presence. But others, however may indeed, as believers, come up short. It could be that, and I think John is a pastor, right? That as he's addressing people in the congregation, there are some to whom he wrote, and some that are here this morning that might not quite have that assurance. In fact, if you look in your life, you might see a number of things in your life. And one of the things even that might convict you is a failure to love the brethren like you should. And sometimes certain people feel as though they have little or no assurance before God. And the question would come, how can you have assurance when your heart condemns you? Well, let me take you here in the text from the confirming heart, okay, under number one still, to the condemning heart. Look at verse 20. Fascinating what he says. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, this is interesting because in verse 19, our hearts reassured, our hearts persuaded, our heart, if you will, is tranquil. We love the truth, and so it shows that we're in the truth because we love the people of God, but not everybody. He says in 20, when our heart condemns us, and the heart often in the scripture speaks of our, what's another word that we'd say for it? Our conscience. And here in verse 20, and it could be you. So I'm trying to shepherd you. I'm not talking to John's audience. This is the Spirit of God. You could have a heart that rather than being reassured, you're actually condemned. And, and I, I believe he's talking to believers even in this. I don't think he's saying that the person on the outside is condemned. I think there's certain people in the body who have a heart that condemns us. You say, what is that? It just means a heart that accuses you, if you will. You have a heart that sometimes wants to declare you guilty, is the thought. You have a heart that sometimes wants to give a sentence against you. Now, you'll note how John says it. Look at verse 20. He says, for whenever, or whatever, or for whenever our heart condemns us. Now, John does not specifically say what that is. But I would tell you that that is a frightening reality for some. There, there, I mean, even you, as I've been preaching this series on assurance, you have doubts at times. It could be a number of things. It could be guilt. Yes, it could even be sin. 
And sometimes that doubt or that lack of assurance is momentary. But I've known other people who have struggled with doubt all of their life. And again, it could be a number of factors as as we would find out from an awareness of all of the Scripture, it could just be an awareness of present sins. You might even be the type that says, how could God forgive me? And you just feel a sense of not ever rising up. And it could be here that you fail to love people the way you should. But it could be, too, that some people just have a, a more melancholy spirit. Some, by nature, are more introspective than others. Some, by their upbringing, are perfectionistic. In fact, some, I would tell you as a pastor, have an overactive conscience. And they don't know how to talk to it. They don't know how to do battle with it. And in their mind, their mind rules. And and there are people who can tie themselves up into knots on this, and they are always condemning themselves. In fact, one author put it this way. He said, you know, there are a lot of Christians, fair, who have eternal salvation, but they don't enjoy it because they don't think they, what? Have it. I believe that. There are a lot of people genuinely saved, but they never enjoy what we're preaching on. They never enjoy the settled confidence of having a heart that is reinsured. Many of them, as we pointed out, think they can lose it just around the corner. So they live in dread. They live in fear. And listen, there are many people, even in the charismatic movement, who think that Satan can come steal it away by leading them into some kind of sin. Or that demons can come and get in them and take over their life and rob them of their salvation. Or people who I've known by the scores that say, Pastor, I've committed the unpardonable sin, if you will. Listen, what I would say to you, a horrific way to live under the sovereignty of Satan and turn God into some kind of victim. But there are a lot of people, as one said, who don't enjoy the insurance because they don't understand the eternality of the gift. So listen, There's a confirming heart, but sometimes there's a condemning heart. Whatever the cause, it causes one to lose assurance. Doubt might set in. Depression becomes a problem. And often our hearts or our conscience can accuse us. This is fair. They can accuse us justly and rightly so. If you've ever done something bad, do you ever feel the weight of that? Hopefully. Hopefully you have a more acute conscience than you did when you were not saved. I remember when I first got saved, I couldn't figure out that what never used to bug me all of a sudden now began to bug me. And whatever I used to never think of, now I, I, I started to think about it. And what I, what I used to have freedom to do, I felt like the Holy Spirit would be on my shoulder. You can't do that. I mean, you'd be talking in my ear. You can't do it. Well, why can't? Who are you? You know, and I just, all of a sudden the Spirit of God, but listen, it can accuse you justly sometimes. But listen, our conscience is also by no means always accurate. Sometimes, fair, it may accuse us unjustly. It may, in fact, condemn you before God. It may say to you, in this context, that your love is insufficient. And you walk and you think, man, my heart is mean 
Or maybe you just see pride in your life or bitterness in your life or lust in your life and you're tempted to wonder if you're saved at what? At all. I think maybe we've all had times of that. I've had times as a pastor where I've thought that. I sometimes, sometimes if I let the, I'm gonna call it the devil, get in, he'll just whisper, you're a lousy pastor. Why are you a pastor? Why are you standing before people? And I'll tell you, if I start listening to that too long, he'll convince me of that subject, you know? And so we are often let our subjective feelings run wild at times. And all of a sudden we're reminded, whatever the source, how dirty we are, how pitiful we are, how depraved we are, how far from Christ we are. And I'm thinking of John when he was on the island of Patmos and he had in that vision in Revelation 12, you know it well, where he heard a voice from heaven salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them, how much? Day and night before God. You have an accuser and he's an accuser of the brethren who in some measure, John says, is accusing you before God day and night, okay? At such times, what do you do? Well, look what John says. It's a fascinating text. He says, for whenever our heart, hopefully we'll see that, condemns us, here's what he would say to you, the faithful. God is greater than our heart and he knows what? Everything. Here's what John's saying. There is a higher court than the human heart and that God knows everything, including the secrets of our heart and will be merciful towards us. In fact, he will often be more merciful than your own heart. In fact, God is ready, some of you understand this, to forgive you more than sometimes you are ready to accept his forgiveness. And so here John says, God knows everything and he has already acquitted us of our sin on the basis of Christ's death. And so you've got to begin to talk to yourself. This is what the famous preacher from London said, Lloyd-Jones, which is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. I think I've mentioned that to you on spiritual depression. He says most people's problem in their life is they listen to themselves. And if you listen to yourself too long, you'll wrap yourself in a bundle real quick. And what Lloyd-Jones makes the argument is that you need to talk to yourself. And here I would say in this context, some have a confirming heart. Some have a condemning heart. But God is greater than our heart. And you've got to put the scripture back in it when it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no what? condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to remind yourself of that. You say, well, Scott, pastor, often I feel, there's the problem. You feel and your feelings run you. Let the scripture run you. And I just praise the Lord for this text when he says, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart. For if God is for us, Paul said in Romans 8, then who can be what? 
against us. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who, Paul says, will bring a charge against God's elect? It is, and the answer is no one, but it is God who justifies. Paul would say there in Romans 8, who is the one who condemns? Like our text. And then he said, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is doing what right now? Interceding for us. Listen, your heart, your mind, your thoughts doesn't rule the day. You have a human heart and a human conscience. Often that's used in a way to accuse us justly. But if you're not careful, as John pastors these people, maybe he's just finding some of them were discouraged because of the Gnostic teachers. And they're thinking, hey, I know we're supposed to live holy and he's light. And maybe they were feeling, well, gosh, my life doesn't match up. And I think John's just trying to say, listen, if you have a condemning heart, God is greater than your heart. I'm thinking of Paul in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any else, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, I, I just want to say to you, God here in the text, verse 20 at the end, knows what? Everything. He's omniscient, meaning that he knows our weakness. He knows our frame. And you need to set your heart at rest that even when you do not carry out these commands as you should, God understands the trajectory of your life even when you feel self-condemned by your own conscience. I mean, are there not times when... I'm I'm searching for a word, and, and this is the word that comes to my mind, where people feel almost like they're in a cloud or they feel at times where they're surrounded and, and they don't know how to, there are times when in that midst, you've just got to cling to God. That God at times, listen, and this may be for some of you, depending on what scheme you grew up in. And listen, you may have grown up in a scheme, not the Catholics. You may just grew up in a scheme of legalism. I don't know that. And you're just taught... And so your whole life becomes just one of duty. And you never relax. And I'd ask you, why don't you ever relax? Well, we got to do. Well, why do you got to do? Well, I got to go. Well, you got to go. But you just feel that somehow it's grace, but somehow for him to accept you, listen, he accepted you completely on grace, right? That in the ages to come, he will display you as a trophy of his grace. And there are times in your life where you might not have that assurance. You've just got to cling to him. Listen, I want to say this very clearly, and I wrote this out. He is greater than our oversensitive, overactive, and misinformed conscience and doubt. And there are times for some 
where you just simply have to say with Peter when he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I, what? Love you. You just have to just quiet your heart. But listen, there are times when we just have to say that with Peter. Now, on the other hand, if our hearts do not condemn us, then look at the next phrase, verse 21. He's just being a pastor here, beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have what? Confidence before God. And I'm going to say confidence before God in prayer. So secondly, the practice of love, as you love one another, will produce the assurance of confidence before God in prayer. He says there in 21, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And so here, confidence, uh, first, confidence in prayer, if you're taking notes, letter A, it's the ideal of freedom of speech. So to have confidence, it's an amazing statement in 21. We have confidence before him. It's the freedom of speech is the word confidence. It means to be unhindered by fear, to be unhindered by shame. And it actually speaks of the openness of a child approaching his father. Now, it's fine to have confidence before God. This is not a proud arrogance. It's a heart that is simply not condemned because in this sense, it's practicing the truth. Now, often this confidence was used in the scripture to speak of our confidence in standing before the judge. Would you look back at chapter 2, verse 28? That's how he used it there. Do you remember when we spoke of that confidence where John said in 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when he appears, second coming, we may have, there it is, confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So there the confidence was that we would have our life, if you will, pure, that we'd abide in him, that when he came, we'd have the confidence to not shrink away. Look over to chapter four. Just turn the page to the right there. In chapter four, he'll mention it here in weeks to come, where he says in chapter four, verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence, he says, for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. We want to have confidence in judgment. But as you come back now to the text here in chapter 3, the confidence here in this passage is not so much related to a second coming confidence, but it's related to here our relationship in prayer. Look at the end of verse 21. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We have confidence, if you will, to approach the throne of God. Now look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And so it's a confidence in prayer. And I love this phrase here in 22. It's a great little phrase. When it says before God, it's just simply the Greek term prostantheon, that you have a confidence to come face to face with God and speak with him in prayer, in an intimate face-to-face relationship with God the Father. You say, what's the point in the passage? Listen, as you love the brothers, this is what John is saying, you will reassure your heart before God that you're in the truth. 
If your heart, because of an oversensitive conscience, isn't reassured, then take hope that God is greater than your heart and knows all things. But one of the byproducts of loving one another and being together last week at the Harvest Feast and coming together for our Generations of Grace Banquet is, is, and as you minister to people in the week, you assure your heart. Now here, he's saying one of the ways that as you love the brethren, you now, if you will, will have the assurance of confidence before God in prayer. All of that stemmed off loving one another. You'll have a confidence because you'll know you're of the truth and you'll come to God and you'll come to God and you'll come before him in that face-to-face relationship. And I'm thinking of the writer of Hebrews when he said, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. That's the confidence we have. In fact, Paul wrote about it in Ephesians 3.12 when he said, in whom we have boldness, he said, and access with confidence through faith in him. We have confidence. In other words, think about the Roman Catholic Church. There's no confidence. But listen, God wants you to have confidence. God wants you to come with confidence in prayer. He wants you to come to the throne of grace. He wants you to do that to receive mercy. He wants you to do that to find grace. He wants to help you right now, whatever your time. And I know some of you are battling big stuff. Listen, you could have the confidence. You could have the assurance that God's gonna hear you that he loves you, that your salvation is secure, that you love the brothers in truth and you can come before him. In fact, I'm thinking of the writer of Hebrews when he says, brothers in 1019, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. So love for one another produces confidence and confidence results in answered prayer from God. In fact, It's so startling. Look at the statement. He says, and verse 22, that whatever we ask, we receive from him. That is a remarkable statement, that whatever we ask, we receive from him. You say, is there any conditions set to that prayer. I mean, you just look, it's all inclusive. Whatever we ask, we receive. And I would say, of course, there's conditions to this prayer and there's conditions to other prayer. You say, what's the condition? Well, look in the text. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Here's why. Because we keep his commandments and do what? What pleases him. And so we'll pick that up in a couple weeks. We do what pleases him. But listen, if you're assured in your heart, you have a, a, a heart that's, that's confirmed, then praise God. He wants you to know that. If at times you feel condemned, look at it, understand it. If it's legitimate, then confess sin if you need to or wrong thought. But if not, then trust in Christ and he will give you the assurance you need, and all of this flows from loving one another.